This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Starting a new series called What Would Jesus Do? And the question uh, in the 1990s when I first received my uh, bracelet, which many of you probably did, was uh, not easily answered. And so I struggled when I first got it to be able to say um, what Jesus would do because I didn't know what Jesus did. And so this, uh, these next few months, my goal and my, my prayer really is to be able to help us answer the question, what would Jesus do so that we know uh, how to live in this world in a way that brings him honor and glory? Here's some foundational thoughts for us is that God is real. His word is true. We are his people. We are sinners and Jesus rescues sinners. I'm sorry, I, uh, I asked this question in the, in the 930 service. I'll get it together. <laughs> I said, what would Jesus do? And there's a little sweet girl right here. And she said, uh, Jesus would raise from the dead and he would raise us too. And I, I don't know about you, but when you're speaking publicly, you don't, when you ask a question, you normally don't answer it. And so you have to uh, you have to learn how to move forward without um, uh, just trying to understand best how to move forward and, and engage and or move forward. And I didn't realize I didn't realize when I asked the question it meant something to her because she lost her mom this week. I didn't know that when she said that she was she was responding because she was hurting. I wish I did now, and I'm thankful that she answered, and I'm thankful we engaged it. But I'm not sure that every time I've asked the question, what would Jesus do? I've let the the impact of it, the reality of it, the truth of what Jesus did on the cross and His resurrection, I'm not sure that I've let it really sink into my heart. And I hope that over this series and I hope that in my own life I can come to that same kind of knowledge that just, like, man, this impacts us. This changes our life. This changes everything for this little sweet girl. It meant everything to her for her to know that her mommy's in heaven. What would Jesus do? We've got to know what Jesus did. And I believe Romans 5, 8 helps us to understand this. I want you to look at it with me. It says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want us today to better understand what it means for Christ to die for sinners. My goal and my aim for the next few weeks is to help us understand this reality of who Christ came for so that we can move forward into answering the question, how did Jesus engage the sick, the sinners, and the, and, the, and the saints? My hope and prayer is that when we come away with it, maybe we have some sort of the impact that this sweet little girl had, and we're able to say, this is what Jesus would do, and this is how it changes my life. Now, here's the reality. I understand that within this... 
I understand that within this question, there is a natural just like desire for most people to know. But yes, do you know what a sinner is though, Matt? And here's what I want to tell you. You are in a Southern Baptist church. We read the Bible. We believe the Bible. We believe it is fully inerrant. We believe that everything in it is true. It's infallible. It is eternal. I believe that sin is evil. Death is a result of sin. Sin is anything that distorts what God has created for you. Anger, murder, theft, abuse of God's creation, gluttony, starvation, and addiction, overindulgence in God's creation, porn, adultery, abortion, and any inappropriate sexual relationship that distorts God's creation and purpose for sex. These are all evil things that bring about death in this world. I believe there are many things in this world that are evil, divisive, sinful. And I want to be really clear that we are driven by a biblical understanding of what sin is. But today, and in this series, I am not asking the question, how do we define biblical sin? I'm not asking or trying to defend a theology of sin. What I want to do is I want to see how Jesus engaged with those who were in sin. Those like me, those like you, who are sinners and were sinners and will always struggle with sin and be tempted, what did Jesus actually do with us? If you find yourself throughout these next few months wanting to continually ask the question, yes, but do you know how heinous this sin is? My answer to you will probably be yes, but what did Jesus do? And I hope that as we walk away, we will be able to engage the saints, the sinners, and the sick the same way Jesus did. I think most of us in this room would probably agree very closely with what good and evil are, right and wrong are, sin and righteousness is. But when we ask the question, what would Jesus do, do we understand what Jesus did? Just because we know what sin is doesn't mean we know how Jesus engaged sinners to which I am. Richards and O'Brien, professors at Washita and then moved to Florida, Richards specifically says, every time you engage the Bible, it is a cross-cultural experience. Every time we engage the Bible, we have to understand that we are reading the Bible, reading Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, is translated into English from a world that is very different than ours. Every time we read it, we are reading about a different culture who experienced different things, who had different norms, who had different practices. And every time we read it, we need to better understand what the culture behind it was so that we can understand what the text is saying to us. Because reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. So I want to show you today three different ways that the culture uh, and during Jesus' time differed for, from us. And in that, I really want to be able to dig in and show you that the effect of Romans 5.8. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, I want to help you better understand what it meant to still be a sinner and Christ died for, for, for them. Christ died for us. I want us to better understand that when Jesus came for the sinners, what it means is Jesus came for the sinners. Not Jesus came for those who like, were just teetering on the line of like, I'm kind of good, kind of bad, I'm kind of right in the middle. Jesus came for me because I look good, look clean, look right. Like, Who did Jesus come for? What was the Greco-Roman culture like? What was the Jewish culture like? What was it like when Jesus said he came for the sick? not the healthy. What was it like when Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost? What were the people like? 
And I think if we can better understand this, maybe we will better understand how we are to go into the world and engage them too. That's my hope and prayer. So I'm going to show you three different ways. First is that Greco-Roman culture had terrible evils. Second, the Jewish culture largely pushed against those evils. And third, Judaism itself had its own evils. And likewise, in the same manner, we're going to see that America has terrible evils. You don't have to look far to find this. We're going to see that our Christian culture largely pushes back against those evils. I understand that not everyone does. I understand that some churches condemn. I understand that churches, some churches conform. Our goal and, and, and what we strive for, and we are going to fail at sometimes, and hopefully we succeed at it a lot of times, is that we want to be a church that transforms culture. We are neither going to condemn or conform, but rather transform just like Christ did. And hopefully, we'll get it right. Hopefully, we'll be close to what Jesus would do. But we know that Christians and churches have their own evils too. So we will not be perfect. That's why we worship a God who is. So within all this, recognizing a Roman culture that was evil, recognizing an American culture that is evil, recognizing a church culture that is evil, we all know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, seek and save the sinners, and seek and save those who are evil, to save them and transform them into what God had for them. If you've been through Alpha, you know this. Uh, We try to help people understand why culture and context is so important. And we ask a question, something like, uh, what, what does it make you think about when I say, go Tigers? And most people will say Clemson or um, maybe LSU or throw out something like that. If I said to you, go Tigers, beat the Bulldogs, you'd have a little bit more clarity maybe. You might say, well, he's talking about go LSU, Tigers, beat the Georgia Bulldogs. Right? Especially come from me because I'm from Georgia. But I went to Washita Baptist University, the Tigers. We played against Southwestern Oklahoma State Bulldogs. On Saturday morning, we would play them, and our football team was pretty good, and so we cheered them on, and we would say something like, Go Tigers, beat the Bulldogs. Someone else might might think they were talking about LSU beating Georgia. That's why context matters. It's why when Jesus engages the chief priests, it's important for us to understand who the chief priests are. It's why when Jesus sits down with tax collectors, it's important for us to understand who the tax collectors are, because the better we understand these complexities, the more we will understand the extravagant love of Jesus when he actually engages people. I hope that over the next few months, as we walk through each portion where Jesus speaks with the saints, sinners, and sick, that we will all be able to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ radically redefines grace and love in a world that has been desperately, desperately deprived of it. So I want to show you first, when it says that Jesus died while we were still sinners, I want to, sh- I want to show you the religious, what we would call Judaism. Judaism for the 500 years prior to Jesus was held captive by other nations. In fact, in 587, 586 BC, somewhere around that time, they were deported to Babylon, Egypt, and some northern kingdoms. During that time, they assimilated into the nations, taking upon themselves the culture of the other nations. We see this in books like Ezekiel, specifically, but also we see a pushing back on culture, like in books like Daniel, where Daniel doesn't engage a Babylonian culture, but rather says, I'm not going to be like that. So he keeps his sort of what we might call Jewishness, his Jewish ideals, those, those things that they, who they are and what makes them who they are in Judaism. 
but not everybody does. In fact, the majority of people assimilate into the culture and become like the culture. The culture of the Babylon, uh, Babylonian kingdom, the culture of uh, Egyptian, uh, the culture, culture of the uh, northern kingdoms, and what will later become Rome and Greco-Roman Empire. As they become more like the world, then they come back to Jerusalem. And when they come back to Jerusalem, what do they do? They bring the culture back to Jerusalem. So now Jerusalem, with its new walls, is really just a new kingdom built upon the principles of these other nations. And now it's fighting for its own political freedom by raising up chief priests who are now functioning like kings. As one author would say it, The role of a king is to demonstrate God to the people, and the role of a chief priest is to demonstrate the people to God. What chief priests did was they took the role of a king, represented Rome to the people, took the role of chief priest, and represented the people to Rome. It was, in effect, the reversal of what God wanted for them, and it was distorting God's plan and purpose for a chief priest. And ultimately what it did was it made religion completely associated with politics. And now what do you do? with politics you fight to maintain control so now chief priests who are supposed to be leading the people to worship God to love God to follow his Torah now chief priests are not fighting for the glory of God but are rather fighting for the glory of Rome so what do they do what do we do when we're fighting for leadership well in the Greco-Roman culture you got to pay your way in so they're paying they're fighting they're killing they are Um, uh, performing uh, sexual sin to try and get their leaders to keep them in leadership. Whoever gives the most amount of money gets the best position. Whoever does the most uh, taxing of the Israelite people gets a raise in their position. So basically what you're doing as a chief priest is trying to get your leader to raise you up by bribing or exchanging things to get them to, um, to raise you up. So chief priests are becoming political. Chief priests are deceiving. Chief priests are leaving the people and not caring about the people, but rather trying to keep their positions. And anytime this happens, when culture shifts, when the world becomes more like, uh, uh, more ungodly, when any of these things are taking place, certain people push back. Not everyone will go with the flow. Some people will say, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. But often what happens is the pendulum swings, as they say. So on one side, you have this group called the Sadducees. On the other side, you have this group called the Pharisees. They were both made up into one group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the leadership of the nation since Antiochus IV. The Sanhedrin would make the decisions on what the nation would do, and the people who were in the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's important for us to understand Jesus' culture, right? The only way we can do that is to look at the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because I know when you've read through the New Testament, you've heard the phrase or the word Pharisee, and you've seen the word Sadducees, and you've maybe wondered, who are they? Well, I want to I just give you a glimpse of what they were doing. Since Antiochus IV in 167 B.C. through 164 B.C. Uh, 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 destroyed the temple, uh, put up idols in there to worship, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus who revolted, kicked out the Seleucid uh, uh, leadership, which was Antiochus IV leadership, kicked out the Seleucids and made it again uh, Israel what we would call like Palestinian Israel, um, just an area that they kind of dominated over. It's not what you would see today, but it was at least something. 
And so they had leadership of themselves. So here comes the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees and Sadducees because the leaders were three different, type, three different families. These three different families were fighting each other for leadership because that's what chief priests were doing during that time. If they could just become the leader, then they could rule over the Sanhedrin and they could rule over uh, the, the empire that Rome, Rome was helping them rule over and they would have dominance and authority. So what are they doing? They're bribing. What are they doing? They're uh, giving favors. What are they doing? They're taxing their people. So the chief priests are corrupt. The Sanhedrin is led by the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees are conforming to the chief priest. They are conforming because they are all chief priests. They're all priests at least. Uh, they are conforming to them and they are conforming to Rome. The Pharisees on the other side are pushing back. So the Pharisees are the ones that are going to set up a bunch of rules and regulations. If the Romans are going five feet and the Pharisees don't want the Jews to go five feet, they put up a rule, don't go more than four feet. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're putting protections around them so that they don't become more like Rome. The Sadducees are trying to keep their leadership position, so they're doing whatever Rome wants them to do, for the most part. I mean, obviously not everybody is corrupt. They're not going to fully engage in all these things, but they're allowing crazy taxation over Israel. They're allowing immoral things to be happening within Israel. They're allowing different types of games. I mean, when you think about the Seleucids, and we'll talk about a little bit about Greco-Roman culture, but we're talking about like the things you see in movies and read in the books and see in plays that are really the corrupt things of the Greco-Roman Empire. That was what you found in the Seleucid leadership, really the Seleucid Empire, uh, which was one of the five smaller portions of Rome. So during Jesus' time, you have this picture. Immoral chief priests who are just paying their way uh, corruptly leading the nation. You have a Sanhedrin that is completely divided between two factions, between the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. One's very legalistic and condemning. The other one is more uh, conforming to Rome's patterns and just trying to stay in leadership. You have these two divisive groups leading within the Sanhedrin. And it is there when Jesus comes to our world to die for sinners. A broken religious system, a broken leadership within the religious system, divided, corrupt by the other nations in immorality, infiltrated by corruptness within the entire synagogue system. That's when Jesus came. And he didn't just come. He, come, he came to seek and save the lost, to die for us for while we were yet sinners. I want us to have a better understanding of what it meant to be still sinners. So what I'm talking about here is the religious. You may say, here's what happens often. You look around at the culture today and you're like, man, the church is broken. Look at how corrupt it is. There's, you know, we look at some churches and we're like, man, they are very condemning. We look at other churches and we're like, man, they are very conforming. And you see all these different things and you're like, man, this is broken. This system is broken. But I want to remind you, that's precisely where Jesus came. Right when he saw that division. Right when he saw that brokenness. Even worse than ours. Look, y'all. Chief priests, those three families I talk, told you about, the brothers, they killed each other so that they could take leadership. It happened throughout the entire leadership system for the chief priests from 587 till Jesus' time. They were just manipulating and trying to get leadership and just treating God's word and the church with division and disgust. I mean, it was... Y'all, we're talking about when we look at our churches today and you're frustrated and struggling with it, remember, 
That is precisely the church Jesus came to save. So precisely the people that he died for before they even, he'd even repented. I want to tell you a little bit about the Greco-Roman culture. You know, many of us last week, I, I, um, I including myself, and twice cooked for Easter. Anybody else? You have a good meal for Easter? Come on, more than that. Let's go. Nobody ate food for Easter? We ate food, right? It's what we do. We're like, hey, there's a celebration. My child's turning six. Let's throw a feast, right? <laughs> we, do, we do meals for anything, uh, and we celebrate everything. And man, it's fun. Food is a place that you can slow down and just enjoy each other, right? Well, it hasn't always been that way. Has anybody ever been to a symposium? So symposiums are primarily a large group of people who have come to listen to one or multiple people talk about really one topic. They focus in on one topic. Uh, Symposiums in our day are pretty, just they're just organized and uh, um, really education-based, academic-based. That's not how it's always been. I want to show you what they did in the Greco-Roman Empire. Before Jesus came... 400 years before Jesus as these symposiums were starting to take place and up until the time of really like 200 AD so like 600 years what symposiums looked like where they started with a meal because that's what we start everything with um, they overindulged in food and then they talked about the topic so during that time they were able to clearly think about what they were thinking through now the majority of these were for like uh, a wedding or birthday celebration or high le- higher level leadership something like that they were very uh, frequent uh, they, they it wasn't rare to be seeing a symposium take place um, some were done for funerals some were done for uh, if you were a businessman you were trying to get another client uh, rather than take them out on the bay or take them golfing or take them out to food uh, and dining, you'd have a symposium. During that symposium, at the end of the discussion, you would shift into the ent- entertainment portion. The entertainment portion would begin with wine. They would all overindulge in wine to the point of drunkenness and passing out. At that point, they would begin their entertainment, which was primarily based, but there were, us- there were other forms of entertainment. And think Gre- Greco-Roman culture. I'm going to give you like PG, PG-13 version. If you'd like to research more, you can. I'll just tell you exactly kind of the background so you can kind of... Uh, formulate it for yourself. Here's what took place. There were primarily men there. Women usually didn't come because the men frowned upon women being there to see what they were doing and to be a part of it. Typically, it was only men. A lot of times, children were welcome into that. Male children were welcome into that. Sometimes they had symposiums for women. Sometimes they had symposiums for children, but it was primarily for men. During the time of entertainment, it was primarily sexual. It was all men, and it was in front of everyone, public, on display, for everyone there to see and participate in. This was a symposium. It was not only that, but at the end of symposiums, a lot of times they would play such loud music to let everyone know that it was taking place. Here's, here's why I focus in on this. Our culture, we see our culture and we struggle. We, we get frustrated sometimes with where our culture is headed. Maybe even church culture is headed. We see religion and we're like, man, this is, this is frustrating where church, what churches are doing. We see our world and we're like, man, this is so evil. How could it get any worse? The Greco-Roman culture took what is private and made it public. And I'm talking about, I want you to think about this. Something uh, uh, in relationship to sexual immorality that we would consider to be private, they would do in the streets. 
They would do at parties, on public display in front of everyone. When you think about the immorality of our world, I want, you to, I want to take you back to the immorality of the Greco-Roman culture who was literally just killing to have a higher level of leadership and money, and it was like accepted practice, who was literally having these, uh, uh, these symposiums, and it was public, accepted, promoted, practice, who was in the streets doing the same thing, and it was again accepted practice. And that is who Jesus came for. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's mind-blowing. Like, I can comprehend theology I can comprehend what the Bible says about Jesus, but when I look at Hebrews 4:15 4, 4, and 5 and Romans 5:8 together, that Jesus sympathizes with all of our temptations yet didn't engage in sin. And then Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Here's what that means. Jesus was tempted yet didn't sin so that he may take upon himself all of our sin. Because we couldn't succeed over temptation. It was when Jesus saw the Romans in their symposiums in public on full display worshiping other gods with sexual acts in public, accepted and promoted, worshiped and excited about it. It was in those moments that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I, uh, I, I appreciate the church at large and the, the desire for Jesus to return one day. And I am excited for it. But, but I want to be, I, I want to just, just help us hopefully as a church to see something because I think this is, this is a place where we as a church, not just our church, but the global church has missed an important reality. And that is this, we are, I think we are asking the wrong question. What I hear primarily from Christians these days when they talk about the culture is they say this, man, the culture is so bad, Jesus is, Jesus is coming back. Surely Jesus is coming back soon. He has to come back soon. Have you seen how bad culture is? And we're asking the question, when is Jesus coming back? And I'm like, hold on. Just what? Jesus is the one who said, no one knows the time or place that he's coming back. And we're all sitting, it's tomorrow, it's next week, it's next month, it's next year. He's coming back. Do you see everything that's lined up? It's perfect. He's coming back. He's getting, Jesus is like, you don't know. What do we know? We know what he did when he came. We know that he came for the sick and for the sinners. And so our question should not be, Jesus, when are you coming to get me out of this world? Our question should be, Jesus, how are you sending me into this world? If Jesus wasn't quickly getting out of the world, but was rather engaging the sick, the saints, and the sinners, then shouldn't we be too? 
Shouldn't we figure out not how to escape, but how to get in, how to meet with the sick saints and sinners, how to be with them, love them, and show them, just like Jesus did, what grace looks like? You see, the hardest place to be in this world is a place in the gray. You see, because we got churches that condemn, we got churches that conform. The hardest place in the world is to be a church that transforms. When Jesus came to the world, he didn't find the 12 greatest people to, to, to go with him, the 12 religious people that were going to be perfect and knew Torah memorized. Who did Jesus find? The sinners and the tax collectors. Why? Because Jesus is a God of transformation. He found his sinners and he helped them grow. And I'm thankful that Jesus did that because I'm a sinner too. And if he's willing to grow them, then maybe he's willing to grow me. And when we look at a world and we can see that there's a, there's a son of God literally came into this world to find the sick saints and sinners and transform them into his children, then maybe he's doing that with us too. And maybe he's allowing us to be part of it. I hope that as a church, our, my, our main goal is not to figure out how to get out of here, but how to, figure out God, how to figure out how to honor God while we are here. Man, may we not escape. May we run into the midst of darkness. That is precisely what Jesus did in Romans 5a when he died for sinners while they were still sinners. So what's the point of this? The point is, Judaism was not perfect, united, flourishing, or creating a global movement. They were divided, slaughtering, overburdened by taxes, infiltrated by immorality, and led by corrupt leaders, and yet Jesus loved them. The point is that the Greco-Roman culture was hostile to the faith, dangerous politically, and as immoral as it gets, I would argue that they are more, more immoral than we are today because what was private was in public, and it was completely acceptable. I understand where our culture is headed, but I want, I want you to see this. Jesus loved them. Maybe he loves us too. Maybe he loves our world too. As I was praying through this and thinking through this for our church, I, I could not help but remember this, this truth that Jesus doesn't need me, he wants me. Man, you got to let that sink in. Jesus didn't need the Greco-Roman Empire or need Judaism. Jesus didn't need to come into this world. Jesus wanted to come to us. Jesus came to us not so that because he needed my flesh and bones and my blood and my mouth or me. Like he didn't need me. He's the God of the universe that could just wipe everything out and start over. He didn't need me. He wanted me. Church, he didn't need the Roman culture. He wanted them. It's unbelievable to think that my God has redefined grace so much that he saw the symposium and ripped them out of the clutches of their sin and loved them. But because he did, he loves me too. Like no matter where you are, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your future will look, like you are not too far gone from a God who chose to come at that time. Neither is your brother, neither is your sister, your mom or dad, your husband, your wife, your children. No one is too far gone because God came into a world that looked like a Greco-Roman culture. And if he came for them, who could be too far? Nobody. 
That's why I believe the Bible says from the east to the west, like from, there's nothing that can separate you from God. There's no sin. There's no sickness. There's no righteousness that can separate you. You know, uh, as I hear the, 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 the argument that Jesus is coming back because the world is so corrupt and the church is so corrupt, I want you to remember that Jesus came into a world not much different than ours, found people not much different than us, and saw our evil, corrupt state of living, and then went and died for us. So when you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Remember that Jesus would rescue sinners. That's what he would do. You see, I want to lay the foundation for where we are headed in the next few months. For what is to come. By showing you simply that when we think our world is too far gone, it makes an assumption that either God is too weak or the world Jesus came to save was not sinful. It's got to be one or the other. Jesus was too weak, uh, God was too weak, or Jesus came to save uh, a world that was not sinful. Yeah, I think we need to put these two assumptions into check because God is not too weak to save sinners, amen? God is not too weak to save sinners. But if our culture is too far gone, God must be too weak to save a culture that is too far gone. Or Jesus came to save a culture that was much better than ours. And when he came, he was like, they're good enough, I'll save them. But our culture is too evil, so God can't save us. Because look at what they do. Look at our world. Look at how broken it is. Man, we need to get that in check because God is not too weak to save sinners and Jesus' world was not perfect. If those two things are true, then God can save an imperfect world and he can save our culture today. Amen. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus says it this way, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So believe this truth. God is real. His word is true. We are his people. We are sinners. And Jesus rescues sinners. That's what Jesus do, would do. If you ask the question, what would Jesus do? He would rescue sinners. The worst of them. The ones in the symposium. The, Jude, the, Jude, uh, the Jewish leaders who were dividing and divisive and, and killing and, and trying to get money so they could be higher in leadership roles. That's who Jesus died for on the cross. And I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know this. He radically transformed what grace and love look like in a world when he did it. That's what I know. All I know is my Jesus showed me how to love sinners by loving me. And I hope that he will show us and you how to love sinners because he loves you. And we are all sinners. But I'm thankful I am so thankful because I would rather be a sinner understanding who I am because I know that Jesus came to save sinners than be somebody who thinks I'm better than I am and has got pride and got religiosity in the way so that I think that only God would save me and Jesus would look at me and say, no, I came for those who are sinners. I hope that you today will recognize who you are, where you are, because it is in the depth of our sin and frustration. And when we recognize truly who we are to the core of who we are, and when we admit where our temptations lie, and when we admit where our sin comes flourishing up, it is there in that moment that we find a Savior whom loves us dearly. It is there in that moment where we see a friend 
who gave himself up on a cross. Because it was Jesus who came to rescue sinners. Not when they were clean, but when they saw their sin in front of them. So my gospel response for you this morning as the band comes forward is first this, to turn to Jesus. Maybe this is your first time back in church in a while. Maybe you're here and you, you, you come because somebody else makes you or wants you to come or something of that nature. Maybe you've never turned to Jesus. You've never believed in Jesus. You've never seen your own sin in front of you. I want you to know this truth. Jesus came for you. He loves you. He died on the cross from you, for you and he raised from the dead for you so that you too, like our sweet little friend this morning, can say in hope and in truth that Jesus Christ raised from the dead and because of that truth, I know I will too. Would you turn to Jesus? And second, would you discover what Jesus did? I want you to take a journey with me. You may not believe what I said today. You may not understand what I said today. Maybe you just want to go on a journey with me. I just ask you to just just wonder with me. Ponder. Meditate. Think through. Engage the Word of God and people who know it. Just talk with people over the next few months. And maybe... You won't agree with me through the way. Maybe I will be transformed by God's word along the way. Maybe we will all learn what it looks like. Because you know what? I don't know perfectly how to come and die for sinners. Only my Jesus does. But I'd love how to learn to do it. I'd love to learn how to give myself away to those who are sinners because Jesus did it for me. And in that journey, I know we're going to differ In that journey, I know we're going to have to think through things. But along that journey, I hope that you'll go with me. I hope you'll see the red letters of Scripture where Jesus speaks to the saints, sinners, and sick. And I hope as we do, you will learn along with me, and I will grow and get better at how to sit down and ask the question, what would Jesus do? And know what Jesus did. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you and we trust you. God, I need you. I need you to help me better understand your word and the culture and the context to which you gave it. I pray, God, that you would give our church a better understanding of your word so that we can take what we learned in Acts and to go, but know what we're doing as we go. Would you help us to have a better understanding of how to worship and honor you as we face situations in this world, as we engage with people and engage with destructive moments and difficult decisions that when we ask, what would you do? We understand what you did. So Father, help us. Give us the strength to do what is right, the wisdom to know and discernment to know what is right. And do it. So Father, we trust you. We believe that your son raised from the dead so that sinners like me, so that we could too. We love you in your son's name. Amen.
have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.